The Wheel of Crime podcast is a true crime podcast that includes graphic and explicit content and may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. episode of the new year for the Wheel of Crime podcast. My name is Megan, I'm your host, and I know I said I wouldn't have such a long period between episodes, but remember when I said life comes at you fast. Here's my official apology for the radio silence, but I have a very good reason. The day I published the last episode about Cynthia Grayson was on Christmas Eve. Later that day, my family had to say goodbye to my Uncle Rick, who was diagnosed with liver cancer shortly after Thanksgiving. My Uncle Rick was an awesome man. He was so laid back and chill. Um, His funeral was scheduled for December 31st, but on December 28th, I went to the ER in severe pain, thinking that I was experiencing kidney stone, but turned out to be an ovarian cyst. No biggie, right? So, but I ended up having to have emergency surgery. (laughs) So it was very lucky that I was in the ER at the time that this happened. I had a tear between the vessel, uh, between my colon and my stomach. But listen to this though, they did a CT scan an hour and a half before and there was no tear. So it spontaneously tore. The doctor said, I've, in my 29 years of doing this, I've never seen this happen. No other doctor that he's talked to has seen this happen. So either I'm the first or something else was going on here that we really can't tell. <laughs> but had I not already been sitting in the ER and then rushed surgery, I would have died. Lost almost three quarts of blood, it was crazy. But Thanks to the exceptional care given by the team at the Community Hospital South in Greenwood, I made it through for another year, and you made it for another podcast episode. I'm just getting back to work now and getting back to normal. Well, normal isn't a word that should ever be used to describe me, but I'm feeling much better now. If you want to interact with the show, you can find us on Facebook. Just search the Wheel of Crime podcast. Find us on Instagram at Wheel of Crime podcast, or email us at, listen, Wheel O Crime. So that's just an O, not the number O, the letter O, we low crime podcast at gmail.com. Also, show the show some support and receive merch. For a dollar donation, I'll send you a Wheel of Crime sticker. Donations over three, but up to five will receive a sticker and a magnet, you lucky mugs. We also have t-shirts, so if you're interested in a t-shirt, just email me 
and I'll give you the details. Wheel O Crying Podcast at gmail.com. Okay, now that the business is out of the way, let's get on with the show. This is episode number nine, Stranger Than Fiction, The Stainer Brothers, part one. I know my first name is Steven. This is going to be a two-part episode. Uh, the first part focusing on Steven Stainer, who was at age seven, um, kidnapped, and he vanished without a trace on his way home from school. In part two, we're going to discuss his older brother, Carrie Stainer, otherwise known as the Yosemite Killer. Now, this, this story is very heavily Yosemite. Um, there are so many ties to this place, it's, it's pretty incredible. So I want to, real quick, send a shout out to my friend Heather Yosemite. Yosemite! Okay, so trigger warning. This episode contains information regarding sexual abuse of children. If this triggers you, please don't listen to it. I won't be upset, but I'm not going to be going into graphic detail, so it shouldn't, I hope, not trigger you too hard. Okay, so the Stainer family lived in Merced, California. Merced is a small farming town about 310 miles northwest of Los Angeles and is considered the gateway to Yosemite. Stephen's parents were Delbert and Kay Stainer, who had a total of five kids, three girls and two boys. Um, I think they all had C names, except for Stephen, because there's Corey, Carrie, I don't know the other girl's name. Um, and then I think there was a girl named Carrie, but I don't, I don't really know. But I do know that there was a Corey. So anyway, um, Stephen's parents, I mentioned that Stephen's dad worked as a mechanic for a peach cannery. And uh, he would come home and roll around with the kids, playing and hugging with them, you know, playing with them, hugging them. He was a more affectionate parent than Kay, for sure, but still raised his kids with, a, with an authoritative hand. Kay is said to have been a standoffish type of mother who was aloof and raised her kids at an emotional arm's length. According to a website that I found called carissable.com with a K, it is said, and I'll put this in the show notes, uh, it is said that Kay was raised Roman Catholic, and at the boarding school in which she attended, she was physically and emotionally abused, and therefore was not physically affectionate with her children, though she made sure that they had food and clothes, you know, food to eat and clothes to wear. As a result, she raised her family Mormon. Now, I cannot verify that this is accurate, but it would make sense given that she was an unaffectionate mother. Other than that, they seem to have a normal family life. On December 4th, 1972, when Stephen was merely seven years old, he was walking home from school one day on Yosemite Parkway. There's a lot of Yosemites in here. Um, when he was approached by a man often described as simple-minded, uh, his name was Irvin Murphy. Now, Irvin Murphy worked at a resort at Yosemite National Park with a man named Kenneth Parnell. Ken told Irvin that he was an aspiring minister and that he needed to save a young boy. God was calling him to save a young boy but he had to have Irvin's help in order to convince the child to come with them. That way he could raise that little boy right and in a closed religious setting and make him a man of God. Irvin had been passing out religious tracts to the kids that were coming out of the school and handed one to Stephen. Irvin asked Stephen if his mother would be willing to make a charitable contribution and Stephen told him, yeah, she, he thought that she probably would because she gives a lot of money to religious charities. Uh, just then, an older, older model white Buick pulled up, and behind the wheel was Irvin's pal, Ken, offering to take Stephen home. At first, he refused, saying, no, I really shouldn't, but after a bit of persuasion, he relented and got in the vehicle. Some reports say that he got in willingly. No, there was a bit of hesitation. They had to convince him to do it. But they didn't take him home. Instead, they drove north out of Merced, and Ken would stop at a payphone. You remember those? <laughs> he would stop at a payphone go talk and then come back and when he returned to the car he told Stephen that he had just called his parents 
who told him, just go ahead and keep Stephen, adopt him because they didn't want him anymore. Uh, they had enough kids to feed, and this would be a huge relief on their huge family. Because he had used the authoritative approach with Stephen, the boy didn't argue with him. He was used to a firm hand at home, but it left him so confused and hurting. You know, why didn't his parents want him anymore? This moment in Stephen's life would become the linchpin in a twisted fate which ensnared two brothers. That night, Parnell molested Stephen for the first time, and 13 days later would begin to rape him nightly. What is particularly interesting is that they would end up staying in a house mere yards from his grandfather, but Stephen was too young to know where he was. He really didn't know where he was. And he, uh, Kenneth kept the seven-year-old sedated with uh, cough syrup for the first two weeks just to keep him confused and compliant as they moved around. He refused Stephen's request to, to let him go home. He told Stephen that he was his father now, Kenneth. His parents had given over custody to him, and Stephen's name was going to be Dennis Parnell from then on out. Now, he did get Stephen a little dog named Queenie. I think she was just a tiny little terrier as a pet, which I think was another way. It's like candy. Let's keep the kid happy so he'll be happy and compliant and want to stay because he's not going to leave that beautiful little dog. What Stephen could not have known when he got into that car with Ken was that Kenneth was a convicted child molester. In 1951, Parnell was arrested for sodomizing a young boy and impersonating a police officer to gain the trust of someone under five. I think the child was like four or five. So he was sentenced to four years in prison. Now he would escape from Norwalk State Hospital and then recaptured. Now things were very different back then obviously, but four years for raping a child? And you get parole after escape? What the hell is going on with this in the 70s? What's even worse was his reasoning for the kidnapping and raping of this child. He said his wife was pregnant and then he had to find another outlet another outlet should be another woman not a little boy that's completely different so anyway um though he denied this in a in a interview in the year 2000 his uh the book by mike eccles called i know my first name is stephen states that when that when ken was 13 he was molested by a boarder in a rooming house owned by his mother in bakersfield california now, typically those who are molested grow up to be a molester themselves and this is going to come back around full circle in part two and you'll see what I mean. Soon after the abduction Kenneth Parnell moved around California a lot anywhere they could. He changed Stephen's appearance by cutting and dyeing his hair so that he remained basically hidden in plain sight. Nobody would recognize him. Now remember though this was the early 70s and word didn't travel nearly as fast as it does today in our social media driven world. They failed to obtain past school records, and had they tried, they probably would have gotten a big red flag because nothing would have come up. There's nobody by that name that exists. That could have potentially caused them to look a little bit closer at Stephen and Parnell, but that didn't happen. For the most part, as kids often do, Stephen adjusted to his new life. People would say that he was outwardly a normal kid who played sports and did other things that kids his age did, but he well, really wasn't a normal kid. Kenneth gave him immense freedom, probably with the expectation that he would stay put. Stephen was allowed to smoke and drink at a very early age, so he got addicted to nicotine and alcohol right, probably before he was 10. And people would wonder later why he didn't just leave with all this freedom. Why didn't he just walk away? But by then, remember, Stephen was already attached to Parnell as a parental figure. And because his father was an authoritative figure similar to Kenneth at the time, a child is taught 
at an early age to obey their elders, so he's not going to protest. He trusts that adults have, their, have his best interests at heart. Besides, he believed that his parents gave him to Parnell to raise, and perhaps this could be a bit of Stockholm Syndrome. His comfort level was already set in, and the stigma attached to Mel right back then, hell, even now, made him unwilling to let anyone know what was happening to him. He just found it easier to go along with it. Now, eventually, Kenneth would date a woman named uh, Barbara Mathias for about 18 months, and they, they lived together a little for a little while, I think about six months. On nine different occasions, Stephen said that Barbara participated in his abuse. In 1975, Barbara had tried to assist Parnell in luring another boy from Santa Rosa's Boys Club. And this is where Stephen would often frequent as a child when he had you know, time away from school uh, to come live with them. Now, that didn't work, and eventually the relationship between Barbara and Kenneth dissolved. Now, Barbara maintained that she didn't know that Dennis was a kidnapped child, denied ever abusing him, but come on, if, he, if she didn't know, why the hell would she try to help Kenneth get another child? So eventually, Parnell realized that Stephen was getting older, and, wouldn't, and he would need to procure another son soon. Now, Parnell was a pedophile who was attracted to younger children, and Stephen was outgrowing his particular tastes. He also realized that he was growing into a man, and he wouldn't be able to control him anymore. He tried to recruit Stephen to help him find another kid, but Stephen would come up with reasons why he couldn't get anybody to come along with him. Eventually, Parnell just didn't use Stephen. He would get his own child without Stephen's help and instead recruited another boy who went to the same school that Stephen had attended um, as a younger child. So on Valentine's Day 1980, after seven years that, he, that he's had Stephen in his, in his possession, and in a similar scenario as last time, he kidnapped a five-year-old boy named Timothy White, who was walking home from school one day. As he did with Stephen, Parnell would dye the boy's blonde hair brown to hide him in plain sight. This absolutely bothered Stephen, and watching Timothy grieve for his family for two weeks, he decided to take matters into his own hands. So one night, Kenneth went to work as usual, and after waiting for a little bit to make sure Parnell didn't return, he took Timmy and left the home, hitchhiking to Ukiah. Timothy, however, only being five years old, he didn't remember where he lived, so they decided let's go to a police station. Stephen told him to go inside while he waited outside, but a police officer saw him and made him come inside. And at first they thought that Stephen had something to do with the kidnapping of this little boy. They asked him his name, and he said in that now infamous line, I know my first name is Stephen, which would become the name of the book and the movie about his ordeal. But he wasn't sure about his last name at this point. He thought it was Steiner, but he really wasn't sure. He, all he knew was he was Parnell. Stephen was now 14 and had been kept away from his family for seven years. After a bit of investigation work, they realized that they had Stephen Steiner in their station. They would arrest Kenneth Parnell in charges of kidnapping both boys. On the podcast Voice of the Victim, which is a really good podcast, by the way, you should check that out. They state that Kenneth Purnell had, had been digging a grave with the intention of killing and burying Stephen in it. I haven't read anything else, you know, anything that corroborates that online or any of the research that I've done, but that would make a lot of sense. I mean, if you can't use Stephen for his sexual desires anymore, then he'd have to kill him rather than allow him to leave and point the finger right back at him. But anyway, that Stephen Steiner was found alive after seven years shocked the nation. He became a celebrity overnight. His family was absolutely thrilled. 
A press conference was held in front of the Stainer home where they hailed him as a hero. He couldn't save himself, but he was able to save this little boy from the same fate that he had endured. In the movie, there's a scene between Stephen and Carrie which shows the two reuniting with brotherly love and hugs. That's not how it all, at all how it happened. That's a romanticized version of what everybody thinks it should have been like. If you get a chance, go on YouTube and look up the video footage of that press conference. It's on there. In the background, you can see Carrie Stainer staring at Stephen with the most hateful scowl. And in the next episode, we're going to get more in depth into why this was so. So life back at the Stainer house didn't go as Stephen might have hoped. Stephen was used to living with extreme freedom, living a bachelor life, smoking cigarettes, marijuana, drinking booze. But now he was living with his family again. He had structure and he was expected to follow the rules, which Stephen found difficult to do. Because of the sexual abuse, Delbert was standoffish with Stephen and would eventually kick him out of the family home um, because of the drinking and the not being able to, to really control him. They spent all that time looking for him, and when they finally get him back, they don't want him anymore because he's, he's not the same. He's damaged. What the hell did they expect was going to happen to him? Stephen had said in an interview uh, that it was hard integrating um, back into his family life. He couldn't understand why his father didn't hug him anymore. But Stephen never turned out an interview and would go on, the ma on major news uh, networks and stations and programs discussing what had happened to him. He wanted to get his story out there so that, so that other kids who have gone through similar incidences knew they weren't alone and knew that they could get through it. Not just that, but maybe it would prevent something like this happening to another child if, if these children were listening. He kind of let his newfound celebrity go to his head, though, and the money that he would get from the book and the movie and all the interviews was gone just as fast as he could spend it. As hard as it was coming back to his old life with his family, it was even harder dealing with the kids at school. At the time, there wasn't a person in Merced who didn't know about Stephen and what he had gone through. But back then, society wasn't as sensitive to subjects like male-on-male -male rape as they are today, and the kids would bully him mercilessly, calling him horrible names. I'm not going to say those names on here. I'm pretty sure you can guess the words, but I think they rhyme with like promo and hack. And provoking him physically, they would, they would beat him up. Now, Stephen wasn't going to sit there and take that, so he fought back. But eventually, he's going to drop out of school because of this. He couldn't take it anymore. So not only did his father reject him, his brother was cold and aloof as well as his mother, but the kids at school treated him like crap, too. He, everybody on one hand thinks he's a hero, but everybody he knows personally treats him like garbage. How absolutely sad. He had mentioned in another interview that he felt like maybe he shouldn't have bothered coming home at all. You know, why would he... He wouldn't have come home if he'd known it was going to be like this. I mean, that's so sad that this bright young man who had something happen to him which was out of his control was now stigmatized because of this and treated like he's a damaged little, little boy. Kenneth Parnell was charged with kidnapping both Timothy White and Stephen Stainer in separate trials, but prosecutors decided that charging Parnell with sexual assaults would label him would label Stephen as damaged goods, and they couldn't prove it in the court of law anyway. He says, I think Stephen didn't really want to drudge that up either. Irvin Murphy was also charged as an accessory and given a five-year sentence, of which he only served two. The boy who had helped kidnap Timmy White, Sean Poorman, was sentenced to a term at, in a juvenile work camp. Barbara, Barbara Mathias wasn't charged with anything. It was her word against Stevens, and she was cooperating with the prosecutor, so they just let her off the hook. Even though she knew about the abuse, never said anything. Piece of crap. 
Back in the early 80s, things were different when it came to sexual assaults on children, and sentences given for those assaults were very minimal. Parnell was ultimately sentenced to seven years in prison, of which he only served four. He was in prison for less time than Stephen Stainer was kept as his prisoner. What a gross miscarriage of justice. Just four years. Ugh. Eventually, the coverage died down and Stephen was able to live a somewhat normal life. He married a woman named Jody Edmondson in 1985, and he had two children and worked as a pizza delivery man at Pizza Hut. He also joined the Mormon church, trying to get a bit of normalcy back into his life. In early 1989, Stephen helped in the production of the movie based on his life, and he played a small bit part as one of the cops who would eventually save him. On September 17, 1989, he was driving his motorcycle home from work when he was hit by a truck almost broadside, and he died from his injuries. He wasn't wearing a helmet. PSA right here, folks, wear your effing helmets if you're going to drive a bike, thank you, and had suffered severe head trauma. Timothy White would serve as one of his pallbearers. Something to note here about both boys, uh, Stephen and Timothy, both died at a very, very young age. Freaking sad. Timothy passed away at the age of 35 from a pulmonary embolism. Now, what ended up happening to Parnell? He was released from prison after only four years. In 2003, he was arrested again for trying to coerce his caregiver because by now he's sick and can't really take care of himself. So he's convinced his caregiver, uh, he, he or trying to coerce his caregiver into buying a four-year-old boy for him with a clean rectum, which of course indicates sexual intent. Could he even get it up at this point? I don't know. He paid $100 for a birth certificate and, for, and had $400 on him for the completion of the transaction when he was to receive the child on January 3rd, 2003. After being arrested, he told authorities he just wanted a family. He was convicted the following year on charges of attempting to purchase a child and attempting child molestation, even though no child was targeted specifically, but the intent was clear. Now, get this. He was sentenced to 25 to life. He didn't rape a child. He was going to. He was trying to. And he got sentenced for more time than when he actually did rape and kidnap a child. Ugh, that pisses me off. He would die in prison in 2008. What an absolutely sad story. You would think that would be the end, right? Nope. Nope. Not even close. What happens in next week's episode is going to knock your socks off and is going to make this story even stranger. So stay tuned. Subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss out on next week's episode, which I swear will not take very long to come out this time because I'm already writing it and I'm going to be publishing it. I don't want to make you guys wait any longer than you have to. Okay? Okay? I'm looking out for you. Have a great week, guys. Check out the social media and don't be a dick. Real time, 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 real time,